Hello. Season 4 of Discography was completed in 2019, but due to circumstances beyond our control, as well as many, many, shall we say, life roadblocks for the host, that's me, Mark with a C, it was not feasible to release the initial edit at the time. As Discography is now a self-contained, fair-use production, a completely re-edited version of this season was finally completed in 2020, so please don't be thrown off by the various dates of recording that'll be thrown about in the episodes. This season was a long game, and it's a bit of a miracle that it was resuscitated at all. We intend to try to keep discography going, and felt that the wait for this season was so excruciatingly long with moved and missed release dates, we wanted to give you what exists as soon as possible so we can move on to the next phase for discography. And we thank you for your support, patience, and your understanding. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Season 4 of Discography. I'm your host, Mark with a C. I'm not only a lifelong record geek and not only the host of this show, but I've also been releasing lo-fi pop records independently for 20 years now. Discography is a show where we look at a great artist through the lens of only their canonical albums of first release material to see who they really are and how it all stacks up. Discography aims to educate and inform those listeners who really want to know. All opinions are that of the person that said them because everything is subjective, right? Discography can also be a really personal journey for me, your host, which you should know up front. And this season, we are jumping into the catalog of one of the most mysterious yet malleable and powerful bands of all time, Black Sabbath. so much for coming back joining us again this is the last episode in this season and we have covered a lot of ground we still got a lot of ground to cover it's still going to be pretty confusing but oh thankfully it doesn't seem like it'll be quite as confusing as the last episode boy there were a lot of moving parts to that but basically right now where we left off was the 95 96 era and the album forbidden which would be the last new album of black sabbath material for years not just a couple years, we're talking like two decades. So we're gonna cover that big gap. And we're also gonna have some commentary from Razor Fist on a couple of gaps that I haven't been able to fill in, but we'll get there when we get there. Are you ready? Strap in, let's roll. By now you've pretty much caught on that after the Forbidden album, Black Sabbath was just kind of held on ice, seeming to only be thought out for the odd festival date or something. By the end of the 90s, Black Sabbath was touring with the original lineup and they'd continue to do so on and off. This did yield two new studio recordings that would be slapped on the end of a live album from their first tour back. The live album was called Reunion, and I'm not going to dive into it because there's not that much to say really. If you like early Sabbath, if you like the original lineup, it's a fun live record full of those songs played pretty well and that's that. But those bonus tunes, Tony Iommi claims that he didn't want to do them at all, but the label insisted, so he and Ozzy literally just shat out two tracks while an A&R guy reportedly paced outside the studio door, the first of which was known as Psycho Man. He won't be happy till he smells the fear. He's the angel of Psycho Okay, look, I can 
can't find something to love in any era of Sabbath, but you just can't argue there is something to Ozzy's voice being married to Tony Iommi's guitar that hits you on a guttural level, even if it's not like the best track in the world. And to be fair, Psycho Man is not the most exciting track in the world. Not bad, not amazing, but it sounds more to me like Ozzy's solo material than a true Black Sabbath collaboration. But that's what the spine of the record says, so hey, I'll see it their way. Besides, the tune was obviously quite well received, making it all the way to number three. Yes, number three on the mainstream rock singles charts, which is about the best chart placement for a Black Sabbath single since Paranoid. The words are pretty standard serial killer stuff, but for me, between the two, I actually prefer the other new track, Selling My Soul. My mind feels heavy, my body feels weak, suicidal thoughts crying out for some sleep, impending doom is what I'm about, think I'm going up without a shadow of doubt. To these ears, it just sounds a little bit more developed between the two tunes, and it's just got a little bit more room for groove, and it's a shame that it didn't do as well with airplay, because I genuinely do feel that it's the superior song in comparison. Tony Iommi was excited to get something going again with the original lineup, but rather under their own terms. By 2001, they were working on new material for a Rick Rubin-produced album, and it was far enough along that they were even playing some of that material live. That's right, you would go to the show, and maybe they'd leave out NIB because they were so excited about the new material. And then, just kinda nothing. The tours would happen sporadically, but that's about all you got. Now, Tony Iommi did get to finally make that solo record with a number of vocalists, and it's, it's pretty solid. He'd even make a second solo record called Fused with a surprising vocalist. As a matter of fact, well, I'm gonna turn it over to Razor Fist right here. I'm not covering Tony Iommi's solo albums in depth here this season because importantly, Tony did not want those things seen as related to Black Sabbath, so I'm gonna respect that and consider those albums that came out under the name Iommi to be their own little separate sovereign nation, as cool as they may be. However, there's a few more moving parts, and Razor Fist definitely thinks it's important that you factor it in. It's rather interesting that for a lineup that Iomi has tried to sort of revise history and claim never was really a Sabbath lineup, uh, he shacked up with Glenn Hughes a number of other times. And there were even uh, rumors at the time, and they talk about them at length in a number of different Sabbath-related books, uh, most notably Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, which specifically focuses on the era when Ozzy and Sabbath were at odds, right? They're, the whole like post Ozzy era basically covers all that stuff exhaustively. Uh, great book. And apparently um, there was at least two separate occasions where Glenn Hughes was supposed to rejoin Black Sabbath, uh, including in the mid nineties, which wound up becoming sort of, you know, shortly thereafter, I imagine they dropped it, but around the forbidden era or so, Iomi and Glenn Hughes start, hanging out and whatever. And there was talk of Glenn Hughes rejoining Black Sabbath. That becomes the Iomi DEP sessions, which was released in 2004, leaked well before that as the eighth star. Um, interesting album. If you like sort of R&B and you like 
you know, blues and soul and stuff. It's pretty good. I really dig it. And I really like uh, the doomier stuff on it, like Time is a Healer and stuff like that. There's some really good, like, Sabbathy stuff where you realize, oh, man, there was actually more gas in the tank with the Hughes era um, in terms of Sabbath. But, it, like, it, clearly they went a different way. I think they were trying to go sort of a... You know, there was sort of this 90s alternative rock thing happening at that time, this sort of Soundgarden thing. And uh, I think they tried to lean into that a little bit. And they figured, I think after they dropped the idea of there being a Glenn Hughes Sabbath reunion, they sort of just hit on this. Okay, well, let's just go ham here. We don't have to release anything. Let's just riff, right? And it turned into a, a really good record. And then... Of course, Fused happened after that, but it was actually after that. Um, apparently, not. this isn't really technically a full reunion, but what there was supposed to be was there was talk of Dio and Glenn Hughes like reuniting on stage and actually having both Sabbath singers on stage. Um, this would have been shortly before the Heaven and Hell uh, thing happened. That was actually why Heaven and Hell happened. Was, you know, Ozzy was kind of... There's this weird era in the early 2000s where Black Sabbath were technically back together, but they really weren't. They'd just play like a festival here and there. But Ozzy was in this weird place where he was... I don't know if he was attempting sort of a solo comeback because his career had sort of... If there was a big peak in the early 90s and then it sort of there was a lull. I think Ozzy was trying to hit the retro metal wave that happened around 2004. And so he figured that was his opportunity and Black Sabbath was a bit of a distraction for him. Maybe. I, I don't know if that was it. I'm sure the Osbournes had a part to play in that as well. He was just busy in general. But either way, Ozzy kind of had Black Sabbath on hold. And you could sense the frustration in the Iomi, Geezer, Butler, Bill Ward camp a little bit. But in the late uh, aughts, I suppose, they there was talk of Dio playing with a, black, a version of Black Sabbath with Glenn Hughes, um, or they would all tour together. And then at the end of the show, both singers would be on stage. And of course, Dio and Glenn Hughes got along great. So there wouldn't have been an ego problem there, um, which would have been cool. It would have been like two different eras of Black Sabbath and they could have played each other's material and whatever. But I guess for whatever reason, Glenn Hughes, I think, shacked up with Dave Navarro. He was doing other stuff and... So Dio decided to do it instead. And then Heaven and Hell happens. So there's kind of a, D a Glenn Hughes connection in this whole uh, Heaven and Hell reunion that winds up happening that nobody really talks about. But it's really interesting because before and after Heaven and Hell, who's the guy who steps in? Glenn Hughes. But in, in both cases, he winds up closing out the tour or whatever, which was a really cool show in 2010 or whatever after uh, Dio's untimely passing. And thank you very much, Razorfist, for that. We are going to touch on a good portion of the latter bit of what you mentioned there with the whole heaven and hell era, because in my opinion, and I think a lot of people's opinion, this season would not be complete unless we really look at the heaven and hell album. If you don't know what I'm talking about, stick around. Please let me school you. How 
However, to get to that Black Sabbath album and all but name that I was hinting at a minute ago, we gotta talk about how it got there. See, Rhino acquired the rights to the non-IRS records material and set about reissuing what they could. There was a compilation that focused on the most popular years with Ozzy, but the label also did a compilation focusing on the albums with Ronnie James Dio as the vocalist. And curiously, they had asked the band if they'd like to do a new song for the collection. One song turned to two, two songs turned to three, and when all was said and done, Ronnie James Dio was kinda back in Sabbath, so was Vinny Apice, and they were getting along and absolutely delivering the goods. An unlikely Sabbath lineup reunion at a very unlikely time. Everyone's bringing their A-game here, but sadly, Jeff Nichols was not a part of this, and to my knowledge, the last time he'd had a place in the lineup was around the time of the first reunion tour with Ozzy. Sadly, Jeff Nichols passed away in 2017 after a bout with lung cancer. Cozy Powell had also passed away in 1998, and if you can believe it, the first choice for a drummer for these new songs around 2006 was actually Bill Ward, but he eventually removed himself completely, and Vinnie Apice just sort of worked out a bit better for this stuff in the long run. Now remember that Bill never actually got to tour for the album called Heaven and Hell. So on any ensuing tours that might follow these new tracks, it would have been the first time that the material would have been played by the folks who actually recorded it. But hey, I'm ever so slightly more Team Mob Rules and Dehumanizer than I am Team Heaven and Hell album, so I'm totally good with Vinny being back on the skins. Three tunes tumbled out unexpectedly, The Devil Cried, Ear to the Wall, and the kind of dirge that only Black Sabbath can make into a melodious thunder, Shadow of the Wind. Still you chase what you can see, like death and pain and sin, and the shadow of the wind. tracks weren't just promising, they were flat out great, so much so that the group would continue working together, but under the name Heaven and Hell? Okay, I guess we gotta talk about it. I didn't wanna because I hate the gossip trash, but yes, I'm breaking a cardinal rule of this season and really the show itself by covering an album that does not have the name Black Sabbath anywhere on it. The original lineup of Black Sabbath was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame around this time, so there was some attention on the group again, especially with potential lineup changes. Of course, there's that ever-present situation where every time Tony Iommi tries to work with any vocalist whose last name isn't Osborne, it's almost always rumored that the vocalist in question thought it was to be a new project without the Sabbath baggage, and maybe this time Tony was finally able to get away with it. It's easy to guess that it was a preemptive way to work without Sharon Osbourne having any legal say-so over whatever they wanted to do, but that's almost too easy of an answer for a group that is, for all intents and purposes, shrouded in way more mystery than they're even given credit for even to this day. But importantly, Tony Iommi states that it was the decision of the artists involved to record and tour under the name Heaven and Hell, mostly because they didn't want to confuse people into thinking it was going to be a show with Ozzy and Bill. So I'd like to underline that I'm fully aware that Ozzy sued for a 50% share of the name Black Sabbath, but to the best of my knowledge, that didn't really heat up until around 2009, concerning this situation at least. 
Heaven and Hell's album, The Devil You Know, came out in the same year, and as no one talks about what the terms of the agreed-upon settlement actually entailed because a court order demanded as such, like a gag order basically, that settlement wasn't even reached until 2010. Is it perfectly plausible that the name change happened as a preemptive way to cover their collective butts? Yes, heck, it's even likely, but face it, Tony Iommi says the decision was made by all four of the people on that album, and since I can't imagine a universe where Dio wouldn't be thrilled to not have to say, sing Paranoid on tour, and get a break from being looked at as Ozzy's unworthy follow-up by people who only like the first six albums, instead being allowed to just concentrate on the music that he made with his pals. I can believe that too. The truth is we'll probably never know the real deal until everyone involved either opens their mouth or is long gone. But the second you drop the needle on the devil you know by the band Heaven and Hell, there's no question, no question at all. It's clearly a Black Sabbath album under another name, and I'm going to talk about it. Okay, I guess if there is one massive change, that tune that you just heard a clip of called Adam and Evil, that ripper of an opener for the album, here, listen to a little bit more. the song was written from top to bottom in advance by Ronnie James Dio. That bit of news completely stopped me in my tracks because when I first popped this into my CD player, I genuinely thought to myself, I don't care what the spine says, Black Sabbath is back and Tony's riffs haven't aged a single day, but Dio out Iomi's Tony Iomi? That is not at all what I was expecting, but I do love a good surprise. And another surprise is that by all accounts, all the old animosities had melted away over the years and everyone was getting along pretty famously. And I'm just going to come right out and tell you, I'd never heard the album before researching this season, but after playing it over and over during one of the most stressful periods in the history of my personal life. I hope I never have to make an actual list of my top 10 favorite Black Sabbath albums, but if I do, The Devil You Know is going to make it onto that sucker and it's going to be high up there. It's exactly what you want out of this lineup, but somehow even a little better than you might hope for. At least that's my read on it. I still can't get enough of it. I have to tell you though, while I'm excited to hear this lineup back together, I didn't hear The Devil You Know until 2018, eight years after the passing of Ronnie James Dio. I had no reference point for how quickly Ronnie went from knocking it out of the park at every turn on this album, recorded in 2008, released in April of 2009, toured on for the remainder of the year, and passing away from a reportedly aggressive and merciless case of stomach cancer. I'm not clear on the actual dates of who knew what and when they knew it, but it's kind of like David Bowie's album Black Star. If you hear it with the knowledge that it's to be their final word, you can't ever unknow that, and as a result, it's next to impossible for me to not see this album as sort of the final will and testament of one Ronald James Padavona, especially with these lyrics that examine the divide between angels and demons and the afterlife in more detail than anything Tony has touched since, like, Headless Cross, but where that album seemed to have Tony Martin going on and on about Satan just because that's what he thought was expected out of a Sabbath vocalist? The Devil You Know is a well-thought-out album that stays thematically on point, and if I happen to be projecting or something, 
one must admit that it's the most on-the-nose accident that could have happened. Listen, for years, I thought I didn't get Dio. True. And as I've researched this season and gotten so intimate and familiar with this entire catalog, admittedly, I did not just underrate him as a frontman, a vocalist, and a writer. But he's just a glorious human being by all accounts, and I hope you'll all understand why I'm so focused on Ronnie when talking about the devil you know. Because knowing what I know now, it sounds like some friends backing up their friend one last time. And for that reason, it also became an unexpectedly moving record, truly. I figured it would rock because, well, obviously, I wasn't expecting to choke back tears at times. Superstition, I'm sure plenty of people think that some of the lyrics in the song Fear are referring to Sharon Osbourne, but that's just assuming that the guys are that limited, and by this point, I would like to give them a little bit more credit than that. Though it's interesting to note that to my knowledge beyond the opening cut, all of the songs here are dual co-writes between Tony and Ronnie. Now Geezer Butler's on the album, but to my knowledge he's not picking up the pen so much here. What makes this especially interesting in the song Fear is that Ronnie chooses to sort of melodically glide his vocal melody down along with Tony's riff, which is something that he once proudly eschewed, but it just works and I'm glad they went that route. And speaking of geezer, there's just no mistaking that chorused, flanged bass that walks us in to double the pain. this track to be especially thematically creative seeming to be about demons choosing how to just torture people on like a daily basis rather than looking at them as the gatekeepers of hell or something and that's what seems to be the running thread here that there is an angel and a devil in nearly any situation you can name and sometimes one looks a lot like the other but it's up to you to find your bliss because where there's an angel there's bound to be a slice of heaven or I'm just projecting again. Say, did I mention that the solos on this thing absolutely kick ass? There were two singles released from this album. One was called Follow the Tears, which again exemplifies why I'm considering this to be a full-on Black Sabbath record. Imagine hearing this on your local rock station and mistaking it for literally anyone else on the planet. Don't drink from the cup of human kindness. It's a strange brewing poison to the touch. For me, half of this whole album could take top honors, but if I can only choose two tracks to keep on a desert island from the devil you know, first I'd ask why the hell I was being shipped off to a deserted island because that doesn't sound like the kind of thing I'd have signed up for, and secondly I'd ask how I could somehow take only two songs but not just slap the whole album onto an iPod. Assuming that those conundrums were greeted with decent answers, one of those choices would easily easily be the other epic single from the album, the six and a half minute heavy masterpiece called Bible Black with a slow and emotive opening that almost reminds me of the intro to Die Young before it slams into the first of many, many builds. And the first page says beware, 
Bible Black might have done a little bit better with airplay, I think if it had a different video, which I've never seen a kind word ever said about it, including the band who had absolutely no input into it, and I'll admit, the video ain't fantastic, but it might have turned some people off who didn't wait for the payoff riff. And it's their loss because if you're this deep into this season of discography, I can assure you that Bible Black is definitely the droid you are looking for. Let him go! He can't come back! He's MVP pick for the album is sadly fairly predictable. It's the all too fitting closer, Breaking Into Heaven. It's a sludgy reminder of nearly everything that Black Sabbath has ever done, all in one place, all congealing into a devastating seven-minute wonder that laments the group punishment of mankind for the original sin. Leave it to Ronnie James Dio to actively not just bargain with God, but to tell him he's hell-bent on making him change his mind? That's just... wow. And in the last 45 seconds, Ronnie James Dio says he's ready for war, he's found the keys, He's breaking into heaven, and then poof, he's gone forever. I can't sing the praises of the devil you know highly enough. It's not just a moving goodbye note for Dio. It's one of the most solid heavy records that I wasn't expecting to gobsmack me so deeply, and from execution to production to even the art layout with hidden hints referring you to Bible verses littered throughout, in a lot of ways, this feels like the record that the Heaven and Hell lineup had been trying to make from the get-go. I'm sad that the most affected I've ever felt by Dio came with his farewell, but I'm happy to say that we should all be so lucky to go out inarguably, inarguably at the top of your game like that. Playing through the pain and coming out the other side even better than you've ever been, there is nothing to dislike about this album. And many thought that this would close the door on Black Sabbath, but that's... Not the case, actually. Thirteen is the name of the final album of original material under the name Black Sabbath. It was released in the summer of 2013, and I am actually pretty nervous to touch this one. The sessions proved fruitful, and maybe a little too fruitful, as there were endless variations on ways to get the album with bonus tracks, and other songs would even pop up on an EP only sold at concerts called The End. Which is not to be confused with a wholly different live album called The End, or a documentary that I saw the, referred to that was titled like The End of the End or something. You know, it's a little maddening. But this is the last full record. And meanwhile, if you get the album on vinyl, you get the eight songs that officially make up the album 13 and a slightly more forgiving mastering job Okay. 
Why does this album exist? I mean, Forbidden was a pretty accurate way to finish the Tony Martin era. Heaven and Hell's The Devil You Know is rivaled only by Bowie's Black Star, in my opinion, as a career send-off, so why make yet another final statement? Well, I suppose that if the other lineups had all gotten to say goodbye in their own way, it's only fair that the original lineup should get to round it all out. I suppose that some could see it as a case of Ozzy wanting to have the last word now that he'd pulled some maneuvers that would split ownership of the name Black Sabbath between himself and Tony Iommi. Though again, besides really the statement that Tony Martin gave us last episode, exactly what the terms of that arrangement are remain a mystery as there was more or less a gag order put in place for all involved parties. My personal opinion is that when Tony Iommi revealed that he had developed lymphoma in early 2012, he was probably aware well before that. And he probably wanted to bring things full circle. I mean, wouldn't you? He'd committed to bringing the original foursome back for a big tour, a new album. And then in a blink of an eye, it all started. For reasons that will likely never become clear, Bill Ward, who was initially slated to take part, refused to sign on, claiming that the contracts weren't signable. What that means is anyone's guess, though there are a few educated guesses that would likely qualify as real possibilities, but it was genuinely now or never. The Riffmeister, the backbone of Black Sabbath, Tony Iommi? Now his body is revolting against him, and time becomes precious in those moments. Under these heavy circumstances, Geezer Butler, Tony Iommi, and Ozzy Osbourne made their final statement by all accounts in the form of the monolithic 13, and I do mean monolithic. But there's a few points I want to address first. Number one. The digital versions of this album are an absolutely brick-walled mess, and interestingly, it's producer Rick Rubin that gets the blame for this. Here's why that's a wild thing to do. Brickwalling usually happens in the mastering phase, not so much during production. That's why a less brickwalled version can exist on vinyl. Vinyl simply doesn't always understand that type of treatment and won't really operate probably. Yes, ear fatigue is a very real thing when you're talking about digital music, and I'd highly recommend a book called Perfecting Sound Forever, which goes to great lengths to explain the difference between the literal physical and mental reactions caused by analog distortion versus digital clipping. They are worlds apart. Analog getting turned all the way up? That's how you get the early Dinosaur Jr. warmth. That's how you just get guitar distortion in general. Turn digital up past its breaking point, and you not only get a Red Hot Chili Peppers album, but you actually end up, get this, making the album quieter. Seriously, folks, there's a whole science behind this. I'm of the opinion that loud music rules and we probably wouldn't have any heavy music to speak of without said volume, but digital brickwalling literally takes away the information. In short, if it's brickwalled, it might seem loud as hell, but you're actually missing out on musical information and them's the breaks. Let's move on. Okay, number two. Rick Rubin, right? I actually quite like him as a producer. He did one of the best things he could have done for this final Sabbath album, which is he kept the tones dry. Very little is coated in needless reverb. It's dry as a year-old corpse, and I have no idea why he took such a beating for his decisions with the record, because again, he produced the album, but he did not master it. Number three. The drum duties were handled by Brad Wilk of Rage Against the Machine fame. And I'm going to say this only once, and then I'm going to move on. I'm not comfortable with the way that Bill Ward's style of drumming was basically stolen from him here. I don't know who to blame for that, and for that reason, I'm not going to belabor the point or bother with it further. Just know that 
No matter what I say about 13, that drumming situation is always in the back of my mind. Number four, back to Rick Rubin. I've heard tales, but I don't know how to verify this, but one pervasive rumor is that he sat the trio down and played them their debut album from start to finish, reminding them of their roots. It's my opinion that this wasn't a bad place to start, but ended up being a bit detrimental overall, which I'll just say why outright. I think I've made it clear that Black Sabbath can be a lot of things, and I'd rather have heard what they could have done now with their current sets of influences and desires, rather than just revisiting the salad days and what feels like fan service, but probably wasn't intended that way. Or maybe it was. I guess if you're Ozzy, Tony, or Geezer, and everyone only wants to talk about, you know, the first few records you made when you hardly even knew what you were doing, it's probably a pretty attractive idea to show that you can do this any old day of the week. Or maybe it was intended as a parting gift to those who had stuck with the brand name for so long. I'm not completely sure of the intent, as it's not really a reunion, and it doesn't really best a ton of things that preceded it. Born again and forbidden aside, of course. But hey, it's here. They felt it was the right time and the right way to do it. It's my job as a listener to respect that and see how it shakes out, right? And my review is... It's a pretty solid heavy record, and I'd be totally comfortable leaving my review of it right there, ending the show here, but I don't think anybody would be terribly happy about that. I'll tell you this much, though. I won't be going through this one with a fine-tooth comb like I've done to so many albums. There's a few reasons for that, one being that because of the bonus track situation and the way that they can make or break the flow of the album, you might literally be thinking of a different version of 13 than I'm used to and vice versa. So I'll be sticking to my highlights here. The people that love this album really love this album, and I do not want to disparage an album that, let's face it, I'm still kind of surprised that it ever actually happened. off with an absolute epic called the end of the beginning that doom and groove is simply undeniable and unmistakable but just in case you didn't get how on the nose they want to invoke those early years So when I said that they seemed to be going for that first album vibe, I mean, it can't be any more plain than that. The odd part here is that while I want to attribute that all to Tony Iommi and Geezer Butler being absolute masters of the hard rock genre, if you were to take the average song on 13, erase the vocals, and then ask people who the band is, they'd probably say, well, it sounds like early Sabbath. I can't argue it. It's part of the whole aura, I guess, of that early sound, it does seem to be brought on by Ozzy's presence. I don't know how it works this way, especially when you consider just how little Ozzy actually wrote for those first eight albums, but there's just no mistaking it upon even a cursory listen to 13, but man, the end of the beginning can hardly be seen as anything besides classic Sabbath once they get into one of their patented boogie turnarounds.
And while the end of the beginning had enough steam to get them to number 38 on the U.S. mainstream rock charts, it was the following track on the album that really kicks the record into gear, making it all the way to number 7 on that very same chart, the absolutely epic and destructive God Is Dead. Yeah, I know, on the surface, a song called God is Dead might seem a little bit on the nose for Black Sabbath subject matter, but it's actually rooted in some German philosophy, and look, though the song is nearly nine minutes in length, it just builds through very nice and engrossing musical builds, like a great Black Sabbath song should. The blood pours down the rain turns red, I don't see the song God is Dead as a little ponderous. And if you see it that way, then whoo boy, 13 is really, really not the record for you. See, it's no mistake that I've used the word epic to describe the kickoff to this album because for real, the first two songs take up a combined 17 minutes before you even get to the third track. And five of the eight songs are over seven minutes long, which alternately makes the less effective moments seem nearly interminable, but it also makes the shorter tracks sound almost like throwaways. That said, the shortest tune here is a track called Zeitgeist, and it's... Well, I hope you have a hankering for what sounds to these ears like a sequel to Paranoid's Planet Caravan, or maybe even Solitude, but with Ozzy singing in a higher register than either of those tracks. I know I love when Sabbath gets into the mellow, laid-back grooves, so... I'm into it. The strings of theory done it. They invoked that early vibe so well that it's almost uncomfortable. One almost starts to wonder if these are merely outtakes from that first era that the band simply re-recorded. Take the effortless and jazzy outro guitar solo that Tony lays down to close out Zeitgeist. news about the album 13 is that even if a lyric does seem a little bit on the nose, uh, take Age of Reason. It's got some kind of predictable nods to like Doomsday, right? But then Tony will throw you into a roller coaster of a guitar solo and then it makes it worth every second you spent with the album. can't argue is that whatever Rick Rubin tapped into absolutely brought some genuine fire to Tony's playing. I mean, it was there on the Heaven and Hell record, but that vibe, you know the vibe I'm talking about. There it is. It's just unmistakable. Dig deep into songs like Live Forever, and you'll find some of the slinky riffs that Tony might have penned in the 1980s, but Ozzy keeps the retro vibe intact by adhering his melody to whatever Tony is doing most times, just to emphasize it, and that's one place where this reunion of sorts really shines. 
Of course, there's bonus tracks with off-putting titles like Methodemic, but don't let that distract you. Keep your eyes on the prize of the eight songs officially on all copies of 13, and you'll be right as rain, especially the unexpected nod to The Wizard and the harmonica-driven Damaged Soul. And actually, Damaged Soul is the track that most represents many of Black Sabbath's phases here because they did start as a blues band and some of the most effective songs for people to like the cut of, say, Seventh Star's Jib from 1986 is Heart Like a Wheel and yeah, all those disparate vibes do come together here. I mean, it's kind of specifically the bluesy side, but to me, it's the glue that holds 13 together. the album, the thing that purports to be the final word of the mighty Black Sabbath, you aren't ready for the closing track about a priest that really, really, really likes children. It'll rip you apart and hardly put you back together, and it's almost as if they saved one track for the very last that really seemed to mirror what people assumed Black Sabbath was from the very beginning which was an affront to organized religion. Well, protesters, leftover folks from the satanic panic of the 70s and 80s, you're getting everything you bargained for and Sabbath came prepared to take you on. Dear Father is buried at the end of the album, but it's almost like Sabbath said, Okay, you think we're just here to criticize the church? Fine, we'll do that, but we brought receipts. Can you sleep at night when you close your Please understand that I'm actually trying to take it a little bit easy on you, dear listener, by selectively and strategically picking some of the lighter verses from the song Dear Father, because this is a heavy track, and I'm not talking about the vibe, I'm not talking about the instruments, I'm not talking about the way it's played, I'm not talking about the fact that Ozzy's there, and I'm not even totally talking about the subject matter. I'm saying that Black Sabbath nailed this one. They nailed this one. And it's not comfortable, and I don't think it was designed to be. But finally, the end of the beginning arrives, and it's better to just show you how it all ends. where they began in 1969, 
And with that, Black Sabbath appears to be finished as a recording act. Now sure, it's more than possible that the original four-piece could get a true reunion together, even for just one night like Pink Floyd pulled off at Live 8. But that's not terribly likely. These guys aren't getting any younger or healthier. Heck, just this year, as of this taping in 2019, Ozzy's canceled all of his work for the year. Tony Iommi seems interested in revisiting the Tony Martin era, finally, but no one seems to be dying to throw yet another farewell bash for Sabbath. But what of my initial question? What is Black Sabbath? I feel assured in my answer, which is whatever the hell Tony Iommi wants it to be. Sometimes he's all vibe. Sometimes it's all about precision. Sometimes it's just about getting drunk and having a good time. Black Sabbath can be many things to many people, but it is the brainchild of Tony Iommi. And whatever he chooses to define Black Sabbath as, that's what I'm going with. But no matter who you are, there's a Black Sabbath era that'll probably knock your socks right off, and there will almost assuredly be some stuff you just can't get into for whatever reason. Remember, I kicked the season off thinking I wasn't much into the Dio era, and I walk away with him being my favorite Black Sabbath frontman. This is not a predictable band, but when Tony Iommi puts them to work, they're never ever boring. And hey, most of the planet Earth credits Black Sabbath for inventing heavy metal. And that's a pretty hard statistic to fuck with. So, thank you, Tony. Just, thank you. And thank you, dear listener, for taking this journey with me. It has been an honor, a privilege, and a bunch of other adjectives to do this season of Discography with you. Discography is produced by me, yours truly, Mark with a C, right here in my home studio. I engineer, write, research, most of the boring stuff and I cannot thank Cat Blackard, our producer, enough for their help this season. There is no chance this season got finished without Cat Blackard. I'd also like to thank every single one of our guests. We had Ernie Cunnigan, thank you so much. We had Razor Fist, host of Black Sabbath Metal Mythos. Highly recommended that you go check that out on YouTube whenever you get a chance. Unless you've done it already. You've probably done it already, haven't you? Haven't you? You read ahead, didn't you? Uh-huh, uh-huh. I could spend just another 10 minutes rattling off people without whom this season could not have taken place, but ultimately, I want to thank you for sticking with it. Thank you so much for taking this trip with me. It's been an honor. I hope you had a good time as well. It's been a privilege to do discography for you. And I hope that we will meet again someday. Until then, take care, my friends. <laughs>